Good morning. Great to see you this morning. How's everybody doing? Good. It seems like the weather changes in Colorado Springs on October 31st, doesn't it? Most years. Yesterday was so nice. My daughter had a cross-country meet, and it was like, oh, man, it's just so, so beautiful. I wore a long sleeve shirt, and I was hot, you know, and now today it's cold, but... All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelations chapter 8. We're going to be in Revelations chapter 8 and 9. Let's pray together. Father, we do commit uh, this day to you, and we ask that we could be a light. Lord, we pray that you would use us as a church, Lord, here in this facility and in our neighborhoods, and pray you'd bring people here this afternoon and evening that don't know you and that we could shine the light of your love. We pray for clarity as we study Revelation this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would show us your power, your grace. Father, that you would be gracious to speak to us. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The six seals uh, were opened, then there was a pause in chapter 7. And the pause was to answer the question, is who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? The answer was the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, sealed by God. And also those saved during the tribulation brought to the throne room of God. As we head into chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened. And as the seventh seal is opened, then that's going to lead to the seven trumpet judgments, each trumpet being sound. And what really stands out at the end of these two chapters, the end of chapter 9, is it reveals hearts. God's judgment being poured out upon people reveals their hard hearts towards God. After these trumpet judgments are placed upon them, there's a refusal to repent. They would rather have their idolatry, their murder, their sexual sin. So it challenges our hearts in that way. Join me in verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Seven seals open, and all of a sudden, the throne room of God goes silent for a half hour. The throne room of God has been a very dynamic and loud place as we've been studying through the book of Revelation. There's constant worship going on before the throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy. You've got the 24 elders, the four living creatures worshiping, the multitude of saved people worshiping. God's voice is like a thunder, like like lightning, very loud and dynamic. And then all of a sudden, complete silence for 30 minutes. Silence is a little bit awkward, isn't it? What if for the next five minutes we were just silent? This is not just being silent on your own, but silent together before the throne room of God. So what is God communicating about the silence? I think it reveals that these judgments, these trumpet judgments that are about ready to be opened, the severity of it. There's this sense of awe of what is coming. Maybe you had this experience. I sure did. Go to your room till your dad comes home. Uh, there was a holy hush over the house. Right? And there's this moment of, wow, th- this is going to get real. <laughs> and this judgment that's going to come upon the world, the throne room of God be- becomes quiet. Also, I think it reveals the heart of God is, is God does not delight in pouring out judgment. 
He doesn't delight in pouring out wrath. We know that from his character. He waits. He's so patient. He tarries in, in his judgment. And he, his kindness, he wants people to come to repentance. But as a just God, there is that moment. That moment where, okay, here comes his righteous indignation on a Christ-rejecting world. So it's silent for a half hour. In verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven angels standing before God's throne, and they're each given seven trumpets. And these trumpets, they would blow and announce the, the judgment of God. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. In addition, you've got seven angels, and now there's this eighth angel, and this eighth angel has a golden censer with incense, and the incense represents the prayers of the saints and is presented at the golden altar. What's interesting about the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament is there was an altar of incense just outside of the Holy of Holies, just outside of the veil. When God had Moses build the tabernacle, he said that this was a model of the throne room in heaven. So there's an aspect of the tabernacle is even built to size that when we get to heaven, we're going to go, oh, the throne room of God represents that earthly tabernacle. So in heaven, there's an altar, a golden altar of incense, and the incense represents the prayers of believers, prayers of the saints. I want you to be encouraged this morning that God hears your prayers. Do you ever feel like that your prayers just bounce off the ceiling? Or God's not really interested. Or maybe there's a lot bigger prayer requests. You know, I'm not dying. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are a lot worse off. I'm sure God's got too much going on to be concerned with what's going on in my life and what's going on in my family. But our prayers are sweet aroma to God. They're incense before God. And He takes pleasure and He hears our prayers. There's a couple of places in Scripture that stood out to me this week in thinking about God hearing our prayers. And the first was with Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're John the Baptist's parents. Barren, not able to have kids. Zachariah's doing his priestly thing. And the angel of the Lord appears to him. And one of the first things he says is, the Lord has heard your prayers. There was this prayer of Elizabeth and of Zechariah of, God, would you give us a child? I'm sure they thought God wasn't hearing that prayer, that he wasn't answering that prayer. But here, God was answering the prayer. Cornelius in the book of Acts is an unbelieving Roman centurion. He doesn't know Christ, but he was a devout man. He feared God, and the Bible said he prayed and he gave. He gave financially. God appears to Peter and sends Peter to go to Cornelius. And the message that God gives to Cornelius once again was, I've heard your prayers. God heard the prayers of this unbelieving man where he wanted to know God. So what's on your heart this morning? Do you believe that God hears your prayers? I'm challenged in my belief of prayer because if I believe the creator of the universe welcomes me to his throne and here's my prayers. I think I'd pray a lot more. 
I think I'd be like, man, that's the most important thing that I can do today is pray. We see the prayer life of Jesus, the fellowship that he had with the Father. He has only 33 years here on this earth, and a lot of his time is spent in prayer. He shows us the the beauty and the power of prayer. Paul emphasizes in his letters how much he was praying for the church. I think he understood this is where real influence happens as we lift up hearts before the throne room of God. So these prayers are like incense before the Lord. I really like this quote from a Bible commentator named Torrance. He says, More potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the power of God and cast upon the earth. Because God hears our prayers, but also he responds to them. Look at verse 4 and 5. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God, before the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there was noises, thunders, lightnings, and earthquake. Prayers go before God. God collects the prayers. The angel collects the prayers and then throws down his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. It's as if the prayers of believers throughout the centuries, throughout the decades, come before God and God says, now's the time. Now's the time that I'm going to set things right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God's hearing the prayers of the 12 missionaries that are kidnapped in in Haiti. I, I still can't believe that that hasn't been rectified. He's hearing our prayers as we we pray for them and However that situation pans out, at some point, God's going to hold those accountable that have kidnapped them. God hears the prayers of the child that has been abused, that is being abused, that cries out to God, God, why would you allow me to go through this? Where are you in the midst of this suffering? Is this abuser ever going to be held accountable? Maybe that's a question that you have as you look at abuse in your life. Is is this person just going to get away with it? No, the prayers go before God. And eventually God is going to to bring that judgment on a a Christ-rejecting world. So he hears, but he also responds to our prayers. If you want to shake things up, pray. If you want to shake things up, pray. Go before the Lord and cry out to him in desperation. Lord, we need you. And I hope that all of the things that are going on in our country, in our city, in our world are, are causing us to pray. We come to realize there's not human solutions. There's not human strategies for these things. We need God to move. We need to be desperate before him. In verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Why the number seven? Because the number seven is the number of completion We see that in creation. God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. That's one week, right? Eighth day is the beginning of a new week. The number eight is the number of new beginning. And here, the number seven, seven angels, seven trumpets, speaks of the completeness of of God's judgment. So here's the first trumpet. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. These trumpet judgments are similar to the plagues that were put upon Pharaoh, but much more intense, much more 
severe. This first trumpet judgment is hail, fire, mingled with blood, and a third of the trees are burned up, and all of the grass was uh, burned up. Many of you know I grew up in the Northwest, and the trees are a big deal in the Northwest, and they are beautiful. If you've never seen the, the redwood forest and those type of things, but they're definitely not worth worshiping. And there's a lot of people in the Northwest that worship the trees, right? We may want to do some select logging before they all burn down. Just a crazy idea. It's a renewable resource. But you say something like that in the Northwest and, man, you get hung out, out to dry. How many people are going to be so upset because they worship the trees and they worship the grass? It's a blessing from the Lord that points us to the Creator. It's a resource to be managed, but not an object of our worship. We might worship our grass a little bit. Have you looked at your utility bill? How much water we, we spend to try to keep our, our grass green, right? And so it's all burned up, and God's in control because he sets the limits. A third of the trees die, a third of the grass is burned up. The second trumpet, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and of the third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Once again, it's, it's a third. It's a great mountain burning with fire into the sea. You can imagine the kind of carnage that would be in the ocean from a third of all of the sea creatures passing away. Just the whales and the sharks, but a third of all of the, the sea creatures. Also, a, a third of all of the ships were destroyed. It's estimated that there's 50,000 ships a year on our oceans transporting goods. Imagine if a third of those were wiped out. And you thought it was hard to get stuff at Home Depot now, right? I went to go change my oil in our car the other day, and they're like, we're not sure if we have an oil filter. I'm like, what? Well, don't sell me the oil if you don't have an oil filter, right? In verse 10, And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and the third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. A star falls upon the earth, and it affects not the ocean water, not the salt water, but the rivers and the springs, and a third of the water, because of this event, is made bitter. We remember in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were traveling through the wilderness that they came to some bitter water and God had them cast a tree into the water and made it sweet. And this is just the opposite here. God takes the, the clean water and he makes it, it bitter. He's, he's getting everyone's attention. The fourth trumpet, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. This is far out. This is hard for us to, to comprehend where a third of the moon is struck, a third of the sun is struck, a third of the stars is struck, to the point where the day is lessened by one third. There, there's that much more darkness and less sunlight. We're headed into daylight savings time. This is, this is daylight savings time on steroids. Verse 13, and I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of the heavens saying with a loud voice, woe, 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 
to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Imagine an angel flying through the sky declaring a message that the whole world gets to hear. And it's, it's getting worse. If you think the first four trumpet judgments are bad, then, then look at these next three trumpet judgments. Chapter 9, verse 1, The fifth angel sounded, and a, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. As we look closely at verse 1 here, it says, A star fallen from heaven to the earth to him. So it seems to be referring to an angel that's given the key to the bottomless pit. The language sounds similar to Satan falling. In Luke 10, verse 18, it says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The question is, is this angel good or bad? Some think that this angel may be Satan. Others say, no, this is a good angel that's on assignment. But it is important to know that he's given the key to the bottomless pit. That this is an assignment that the Lord gives to go ahead and and open up the bottomless pit at this particular time. In verse 2, And he opened the cosmic pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. As this bottomless pit is, is open, there are these locusts that come out, and they're demonic in nature. So far in these trumpet judgments, we, we see nature being impacted, the trees, the grass, the sea, the sun. But now there's a demonic element where, where God allows there to be more demonic activity. It's as if God's saying, hey, you want the Antichrist? You want to be against Christ? You, you want Satan? You want darkness? Okay, here you can have it. Write down Jude 6 because it's an interesting verse in, in Jude 6. It says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of of the great day. An interesting verse, God's saying there's angels that fell, that left their proper domain, and God has locked them up until a particular point in time. And this could be what is being referred to here in verse 2, that that God now is letting them out for a particular season. This does highlight the reality that there's a spiritual battle. That Satan's real, demons are real. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I seem to be slow to be aware of the spiritual battle. Oftentimes I think of things in the physical, the practical, trying to find solutions. And then I'm reminded, oh, there is a, a spiritual battle taking place. We don't have to be afraid. We know that Jesus has won the victory. Amen? We agreed on that? It's absolutely clear that God is more powerful than Satan to the point where God says to submit to him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you because of that position of of victory. James chapter 4. How are we to respond to lust? Run for our life. When we're struggling with sexual temptation, we, we run for our life. But when it's a spiritual battle, what are we called to do? We're called to resist. We're called to fight. We're called to to use the armor of God that's given to us in Ephesians chapter 6. So let's go on and look at 
Verse 3, Then out of the smoke came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So the locusts are given power by God, and they're similar to, to scorpions. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So all those that God sealed, the 144,000, there's limits on what these locusts uh, could do. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torments were like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. So they couldn't kill people, but they tormented them for, for five months with these scorpion stings, these scorpion bites. Did the scorpions sting or bite? Do you guys know? They sting. You guys are as good as Google. <laughs> they sting. And to the point where they wish that they would die. In verse 6, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So there's this desire to die, but they can't die. They would rather die than turn to the Lord in repentance. This reveals their hard heart. What would really provide relief in this situation? Cry out to the Lord in repentance. Lord, forgive us. We've turned against you. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for my sin and rose again. I'm ready for you to be the Lord of my life. But instead, they would choose death. What's unfortunate about this is will death relieve them of their torment? That's actually only going to get worse. These, these are unbelievers that are rejecting the Lord. So if they are to die, they're going to go from the great tribulation to the torments of hell. How many unbelievers in, in this life are, are looking forward to death, thinking that death is going to be some type of relief, but since they have rejected Christ, it only gets worse in eternal separation from the Lord. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 1? He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're in Christ, if he's your savior, if you believe in him, if you you trust the gospel, then death is gain. Then we're home to be with the Lord. But for those that don't know Christ, that are longing for death, it simply goes from bad to worse. In verse 7, And the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. John is seeing this in a vision and trying to describe it in language. So it's like this. The shape of the locust was like a horse prepared for battle. On their heads were were crowns like gold, and and their faces were were like the faces of of men. These are far-out creatures, aren't they? Seems more like a Marvel movie, doesn't it? In verse 8, they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. Hair like women, teeth like a lion, but wings that sound like a chariot rushing into battle, and they had tails like scorpions. And there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had a king over them. And they had, and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. 
whose name in Hebrew is Abidon, but in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. So there is a fallen angel, a demon. Demons are are fallen angel who is over the bottomless pit, and his name is Abidon, Apollyon. Abidon means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. This leader of their ranks is no doubt Satan. This is another name for Satan. Satan comes as the angel of light, but he's the ultimate destroyer. Jesus told us what his mission statement is and also what the mission statement of the enemy is. He comes to give life and to give it more abundantly, but Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John John 10.10. What stands out to me in this verse in verse 11 is the demonic realm has leadership and unity. There's leadership and there's unity. There's no doubt who the leader is, and they're united under the leader. And how much more for us in the light, in the kingdom of light, that we understand who the leader is, it's Jesus, and we're unified under him. And because Satan wants to destroy, what's he going to attack first? He's going to attack our allegiance to Christ, and he's going to attack our unity. Whenever believers are gathered together, there's that attack on unity, attack on our marriages, attack on our families, attack on the body of Christ. And so for us to endeavor to stay in unity, to to stay in relationship with, with one another. In verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, the altar of incense, saying to the six angels who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So there's four specific angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates for God's uh, purposes. The river Euphrates was a boundary for the Garden of Eden. We see that in Genesis 2. It's also a boundary for the promised land in Genesis 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. So now in this sixth trumpet judgment, these angels are released to assemble an army of 200 million that's going to go and kill a third of mankind. You may be sitting here as you read this and go, oh, this is just, this is too harsh. How can God bring this kind of judgment and kill a third of mankind? And remember, we're not here yet. We haven't got to God's wrath yet on a Christ-rejecting world. But there will come a point in time where things are so bad, the hearts of man are, are so bad, that God in his holiness and his justice has to bring, bring judgment. Sometimes even in our fallen state, as we see things getting so depraved, we cry out to the Lord and we say, Lord, when are you going to make things right? And ultimately, he's, he is going to, to make things right. And the reason that he judges is because of our sinfulness. This isn't a knock on his character. It's not a knock on his holiness, but it's an understanding of, of our sinfulness. It also causes us to appreciate what Christ has done for us. To pay the price for our sins so 
We're not objects of God's wrath. This army is huge, 200 million. All of the soldiers assembled on all sides is estimated in World War II of being 70 million. And this is 200 million to give you an estimate of this army that's put together to kill a third of, of mankind. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hannock blue, and sulfur yellow. And then the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. And their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now this is where we focus this morning is, is the response to these six trumpets, judgments. We'll see the seventh trumpet judgments in a, in a future study. Read with me how they respond. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they didn't repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or of their thefts. You'd think there'd be repentance. You'd think of these trumpet judgments that there would be a humility before God. A third of all of mankind has been killed. You're part of the two-third that's left, and instead of repenting, they shake their fists at God. And they don't repent of the works of their hands. They don't repent of the idolatry. They don't repent of the sexual sin. They don't repent of the murder. They're saying, we want our darkness We want our sin over a relationship with God. They hold on to the worship of of demons. The first thing in this list is the the worship of demons. Then it's followed by idolatry. Idolatry is mixed with demonic activity. Demons want us to get our attention off of Jesus and put other things in its place. What do they worship? Well, they're worshiping gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, and the demons are like, great, we got them right where we want them. In Psalms 115, it talks about idolatry, and it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. You become like what you worship. So if we worship our house, if we worship ourselves, if we worship anything other than Jesus Christ, we're going to become like what we worship. So we want to be careful what we choose to worship. So demonic activity and idolatry go go hand in hand uh, together. And then the next thing that we see here is they don't repent of their their murder. Are we beginning to see these kinds of traits, these attributes in our culture today? We're not here at God's judgment, but we see things leading up to it. Do we have a culture of murder, and do we want to hold on to that as a value? 
Most people would say no. They go, no, we don't, as a culture here in Colorado, have a value of murder. And unfortunately, I'd ask you to reconsider that, and this is why, because of our laws on abortion. We had not too long ago an opportunity to pass a law that would prevent babies being aborted in the third trimester. And Colorado, in a vast majority, said we want to kill babies in the third trimester. Prior generations maybe didn't know what was going on in the womb. We absolutely know what's going on in the womb. With 3D ultrasounds, we know exactly that that's a life and, and we're taking a life. So we valued it. We voted for it. We said we want the right to be able to kill babies in the womb. And this is a, this is a hard and painful topic because so many have had an abortion or participated in abortion. And I want you to know that God loves you and he's a God of grace and a God of, God of healing. And he pays the price for sin. And bring that to the Lord and allow the Lord to, to heal your heart. But we do see how this is entered into our mindset, a, a mindset of, of murder. We see it with babies in the womb. But we've also decided in Colorado that if you're terminally ill, to go ahead and have assisted suicide. Where you go to your doctor, I'm terminally ill, the doctor gives you prescription, it doesn't even happen in a hospital, you go fulfill the prescription, and you die at home, right? That's taking a life that belongs to God, and I hate seeing loved ones suffer. It's really hard to, to see loved ones suffer, to see people in the church that I care for, friends, suffer through terminal diseases, but we don't get to choose when to end our lives, even if we're suffering. Does God use suffering? Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He suffered. So that we don't understand suffering, we go, okay, Lord, here I am with this, this terminal disease and, and I'm suffering, but I don't get to choose to, to end my life. Suicide has become a value that we are starting as a culture right here in Colorado Springs to attribute as a virtue, unfortunately. A lot of people will talk about suicide in this language of you did something of value by taking your own life. You were suffering and you did something courageous by going ahead and ending the suffering. Don't ever believe the lie that your family's life is going to be better if you're gone. Unfortunately, I've been a part of a lot of memorial services for suicide, and it's never been better for the family. You want to set off an atomic bomb in the life of your family? Commit suicide. You want to cause acute suffering in the life of your children? Commit suicide. It's the most selfish thing that you can do, and you're choosing murder. You're murdering yourself. Put it in biblical terms, and if you're struggling with suicide, man, we want to help. We want to come alongside. There's so many people that want to help. Come for prayer this morning. Call the church office. Don't believe those lies, but as a culture, we've embraced murder. We've embraced it in the womb. We've embraced it in our elderly years. We've embraced it if we're struggling. Okay, we'll go ahead and we'll commit suicide. 
We've embraced it in, in the violence that, that we see taking place. And it's mind-blowing here in Revelations 9, after God's intense judgment, they'll say, I want murder. I'll take murder instead of Jesus. But then the list goes on and it says sorcery. If you look up this in the Greek, from the Greek word, we get our English word pharmakia that speaks of drugs. There's this demonic element with drugs as well. As you take drugs, you're opening yourself up to that demonic influence. That's why God has so much better for us. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. God doesn't want any substance controlling us other than the Holy Spirit. But this Christ-rejecting world says, we'll hold on to our drugs. Right here in Colorado Springs, right here in Colorado, isn't drugs something that we value more and more? Something that we hold tight to, to say, hey, this is something that we want in our lives. I know that you know this, but just because something legal doesn't mean it's biblical, right? There's a lot of crazy, screwy laws. And so we got to look and go, is something, something biblical? And then of their sexual immorality. We hold on to sexual immorality more than anything else. If you want to get in a lot of trouble at work on Monday, just talk about God's de- definition for sexuality. Because a Christ-rejecting world doesn't want to hear that God designed us, male and female, inside of the commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. This is where he's designed sex to be. And at the end of times here in God's judgment, they'll say, I don't want Jesus. I want my sexual immorality. I want my, my sexual sin. The dark hearts are, are revealed. The last one, end of their thefts. What happens even in those last two years when things hit the fan in cities and communities across the country? People steal. Right? Hey, this is a good time to riot. This is a good time to go into that store. I can get away with it and take, take all, all of this stuff. And this is a virtue that's held on to at this time as well in, in Revelations chapter 9. So, so hearts are revealed. And we ask this question, how do hearts get so hard? How do they get this hard where God is judging in such an intense way and they'll hold on to, to sin? And Romans 1 answers that question. Romans 1 tells us that God's been revealed in creation. God has revealed himself. And they knew God, but didn't glorify him as God. So there's this rejection of the knowledge of God, nor were they thankful. They were, they were unthankful. And that sets in motion this downward spiral of, of the soul. And it results in such a hard heart. We need to guard our hearts as believers. We need to guard our hearts. In Proverbs 4, 23, it says this, to, to keep your heart with all diligence, because out of it flows the issues of life. If you have gone through some type of health challenge or, or live with some type of health challenge, you know maybe what it's like to keep your physical heart with all diligence. You're like, man, I, I've got to watch this and watch that and make sure I exercise and make sure that I, I eat right spiritually, we're all in danger of a heart attack. <laughs> we're all in, in danger of our hearts getting hard. The heart's de- deceitfully wicked. Who can, can know it? And so how do we keep our hearts soft before the Lord? 
listening to the voice of the Spirit, asking God to search us and know us, being honest with the Scriptures, letting the Scriptures shine light into our hearts and lives. Here's a group of people that refuse to repent. Hopefully, in us, we're willing to repent. We keep short accounts with the Lord, that the Lord's able to get our attentions and check our hearts and say, hey, your, your anger, your, your pride, your covetousness, it's not glorifying me. Repent of that. And as we repent, as we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if you don't know Christ this morning, what would it take to humble your heart to Jesus? Because here's a group that experience God in such a powerful way, but they don't want anything to do with him. And Jesus has died for you specifically. He's risen from the grave specifically for you. And to be saved is to repent from sin, to cry out to Jesus, Jesus, save me. In just a moment, we're going to sing together. And when we sing, come receive Christ as your Savior. Make that decision. I need Christ. I'm a sinner that needs to be saved. And your eternity depends on whether you choose Christ or not. If you don't know Christ, as we begin to sing, run down here to receive Christ as your Savior. Like, this is urgent. This is important. Receive Him as your Savior. For those that are watching online, make that decision in your heart. Go to the chats and comments and say, I want to receive Christ. And then for us as believers, don't get in a place where murder is normal. Don't get in a place where idolatry is normal. Don't get in a place where suicide is normal. Don't get in a place where pornography is normal. Don't get in a place where sexual sin is normal. Don't get in a place to rip people off is, is normal. Go, no, this isn't what God has for me. He saved me, he's forgiven me, and he wants me loving God and loving people. And all of this is the opposite of loving God and loving people. This is the enemy's work, but Jesus has abundant life for us. And what's that abundant life? It's loving Jesus and loving people. So this is the dark side, but Jesus has got the light, doesn't he? And so we can embrace the light and say, I want all of the light. I want to run to Jesus I want to live for him, and I don't want to mess around with with these things. So let's stand and let's pray together and ask for God's help. Jesus, we are humbled by your judgment that's revealed in Revelations 8 and 9, and we know that we deserve this type of judgment if it wasn't for your sacrifice. And so we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your blood that was shed. We pray for those that don't know you that this morning would be the day of salvation, that they would turn to you, that would be be saved, be born again. And Lord, for us as believers, as your children, would you guard our hearts? Lord, the darkness is real. The temptation is real. The, The demonic battle is real. But Jesus, you're greater. You're the light of the world. You're the king of kings. And we run to you this morning and we declare, Jesus, we love you. And we want to serve you. We want to love people in a genuine and authentic way. So we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.